go back home later today and read through Genesis 38 and then check your family's dysfunction against what you're going to read there in Genesis 38. Some of you already know the story. That's why you laugh. The context here is Judah and Tamar, two relatively uh, maybe unknown people here for us in Matthew chapter 1, verse 4, if you don't know their story. But it goes all the way back to a guy you might know pretty well. His name is Joseph. Now, Joseph, we know maybe through the, the, the different coat, the coat of many colors that he had, and we know that growing up, right, Joseph, he had these dreams and, and he had older brothers and, and these dreams oftentimes included things that the older brothers and his father didn't want to hear, right? You're, you're going to be bowing down to me and, and, and I'm going to be ruling over you. And so, of course, as this, the recipient of the only colored coat from his, his father and these dreams obviously caused dissension between him and his older brothers, so one day, as Joseph goes out to check on his older brother who, who are out in the field, his brothers see him coming from a long way off, and they decide, you know what, we're sick of this kid. We're sick of the way he gets treated. We're, we're sick of the way that, that, that he treats us. We're, we're sick of all of his dreams. Why don't we just end him? And so they grab Joseph, and they throw him in a well, and they're deciding on whether or not to kill him. Now, you think your family has dysfunction. When was the last time you were in a well listening to how they were going to gut you, right? The oldest brother, Reuben, says, I don't know, killing him may not be a great option. And then we are introduced to a guy named Judah. And Judah says, you know what? I think you're right. Let's not kill him. We could make money off of him. Why don't we sell them? Then at least we'll have some profit for ourselves. So they do. And they take their own flesh and blood and they sell him off into slavery. And then they move on their merry way. And that's how Genesis chapter 37 ends. Then we read Genesis chapter 38. Follow along with me if you have your Bible. This is what it says, Genesis chapter 38, starting in verse 1. At that time, Judah, the guy who says, all right, let's not kill him. Let's at least make some money from this thing. Come on, y'all, be smart with me. That Judah left his brothers, and he went down to stay with a man of Adullam named Hira. There, Judah met the daughter of a Canaanite man named Shua, and he married her, and he made love to her, and she came pregnant and gave birth to a son who was named Ur. And she conceived again and gave birth to a son, uh, another son and named him Onan. And then she gave birth still to another son and named him Shelah. And it was at Kezli, uh, Kezeb, sorry. See, I, I need the song. Guys, get back up here. <laughs> that she gave birth to him. Judah got his, uh, a wife for Ur, her firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the eyes of the Lord's sight, so the Lord put him to death. Now, there's a lot that happens here. <laughs> Goodness gracious, right? 
Uh, we just read about this family who decides, all right, the youngest one, we don't like him anymore. Let's kill him. Let's not kill him. Let's sell him off. All right, he's sold. And then the, and one of the brothers takes off and he gets a wife and he has three sons and the oldest one grows up. He finds a wife for him, was customary at the time. And it says, the Bible says, all right, listen, Ur was so wicked that God says, no more. Now, I don't know about you, but just in a few short verses, I already have some issues with the text. You there with me? There, there are some things that just don't make a whole lot of sense. A lot of theologians and a, and a lot of non-theologians look at this section of Scripture, chapter 38, and it's right smack dab in the middle of Joseph's story, and they wonder, why, why is it here? It's such an odd place. We later see Joseph's story coming back to life in chapter 39. And there in chapter 39, Joseph is in the house of Potiphar. And Potiphar is this high-ranking official in the land of Egypt. And, and essentially, Joseph kind of gains trust with Potiphar. And, and Potiphar puts him in charge of everything in the house. One day, <laughs> Potiphar's wife sees Joseph, this young, strapping guy, she decides that she's going to begin to make her move. And Joseph, keeping in mind, there's no Ten Commandments. There's no law. There's, there's nothing that would say, all right, you know what? Hey, God says don't do that. Joseph says, listen, I don't believe that's right. I don't think that's what the, the thing in my life should be happening. I don't want to break the trust of the person of, of the person who employs me. I, I don't, I don't want to sleep with somebody else's wife, and so I'm not going to do it. And what happens? Potiphar's wife is embarrassed. She's angry. She's outraged. And so she claims that he was making advances, and he winds up spending time in prison. This is Joseph. The guy who was betrayed by his family, threatened death, holds to morals, and gets thrown in prison. Judah, on the other hand, he leaves after profiting from the sale of his brother, marries a Canaanite woman. Do you remember the Canaanites? This group of people that, that God said, hey, listen, you need to avoid them. I mean, they're doing, they're practicing all kinds of evil things. And if you, if you intermarry with it, if you, it's, it's going to be bad for you. And he goes there and he gains a wife and he begins to populate, uh, multiply his family, populate the earth. And he gives birth to this first son, Ur. And Ur dies in this weird sequence in the Bible. It says that he was, there was evil on the side of the Lord. And we don't, we don't have record as to what that was. I mean, what happened? And we have other places in the Bible that says that somebody, somebody is such and such, and all of a sudden the guy says, no, 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 that's not going to happen. We don't have that with Ur. And a lot of times we come to hard places in the Scripture like this, and we question why. Would God do that? 
Why, why would God cause somebody to die? Why would he put them to death? And I hear that. And there are things that I struggle with in the, in the Bible. But ultimately, when I come face to face with those kinds of things, and I look at my own self, and I look at our society today, I have to believe that we're lucky that God puts up with any of us. Like maybe, maybe the fact that I'm here and you're here is just a sign of God's grace. Maybe he, he holds out hope. And maybe this story truly is about hope in the midst of trial and pain and deception. Maybe Ur didn't fall far from his father's footsteps. This guy who would sell off or even think about killing his own flesh and blood, we're going to learn later on in the scripture, is not such a great guy. The story isn't done. What we find out is true and customary of, of, of the Jews of that time is that if a brother was married and, and something happened to him and he passed away, that, that the next son in line would take over and they would marry their, their brother's widow and then they would have children and then their children would actually be the, the children of the brother who passed away. And this was customary of the time. So what happens is Ur passes away, and we, we read that uh, ultimately Judah has three sons. So the next one in line, On, Ona, he, he comes up and he begins, or he's really propositioned to be the husband. Well, we read in this story, and you can read it on your own, that there's some weird things that happen there, right? That, that he wants to sleep with her, and he's fine with that, but he certainly doesn't want to give away his children to his brother. Ultimately, what happens with Onan is that he wants gratification without responsibility. And I want to say that again because I think that may be a thing that happens in our society today too. That Onan wanted gratification without any responsibility. I think that can happen in our families, right? That, that, that we want everybody to take care of us, to do the things for us, but the responsibility factor of breaking cycles or the responsibility factor of ending addictions or the responsibility factor of taking care of our own self and healing may never happen. God sees Ur's wickedness and he dies. And Onan follows suit. And now he dies. And it's this tragic story. I mean, there's death and grief and deception. And there's a third son, Shelah. Now, Shelah is... He's young, we read this from the scripture, and I have to be thinking that, that Judah thinks to himself, you know, listen, I, I, don't, I don't know that I really want to give you one more of my sons because what happened to the first two, maybe the problem isn't as much you, maybe, or maybe, maybe it's not them, but it's you. Maybe you're the issue. And so he tells Tamar, listen, here's what we'll do. I'll give you my third son, 
but wait. Go back, put on your widow's clothes, go back home, live with your father, and then when my third son is grown, I'll give him to you. And so that's exactly what Tamar does. But as you read the scripture, you realize that that's not the intention of his heart. The intention of his heart is to move on. The intention of his heart is to forget like any of this ever happened and not open himself up for losing any more children. And so we read here in Genesis chapter 38, starting in verse 12, it says this, after a long time, Judah's wife dies, the daughter of Shua. And when Judah had recovered from his grief, he went up to Tinma, to the men who were shearing sheep, and to his friend Hira, Abdulite, and he went with him. And when Tamar was told, your father-in-law is on his way to Timna to shear sheep, she took off her widow's clothes and covered herself with a veil to disguise herself. And then she sat down to the entrance of Enam, which is on the road to Tinma. For she saw that, though Sheila had now grown up, she had not been given to him as the wife. See, there was this idea that, that he, she was going to be taken care of. That Judah would fulfill the promise. That he would do what he said he would do. And yet that was taken from her. She had been faithful. She had lived in grief. She was a widow. And yet everything was taken from her. She understands now that her father-in-law is going to come up and that he's going to be with the men shearing sheep. And oddly enough, what's going to happen in this scripture is that she's going to disguise herself as a prostitute. Now, I told you this story is real messed up. But here's Judah's father-in-law, who's now the widow of two of his sons, who's dressing up as a prostitute to meet who? Come on, Judah. Because what does she know about him? What does Judah like to do in his off time? This is so well known about Judah that his daughter-in-law knows. If I dress up and stand here, I know what's going to happen. You have people in your family like that? Now, I'm not saying if you dress up like a prostitute, you'll lure men. I'm saying you know somebody in your family who has such a way about them that you can predict their bad behavior. Been there? Know that? If you don't, it might be you, all right? <laughs> it may be you anyway. There's a sickness in this family, and it's deep. It's so deep that it hurts the heart of God. It's so deep it's known and evident by others. It's so deep it's predictable. And that's the level of dysfunction here. 
Verse 15, when Judah saw her, he thought that she was a prostitute for she had covered her face. Not realizing that she was a daughter-in-law, he went over to her by the roadside and said, come now, let me sleep with you. What will you give me to sleep with you? She asked. I'll send a young goat of my flock, he said. Will you give me something as a pledge until you send it? She asked. He said, what pledge shall I give you? Your seal and its cord your staff in your hand, she answered. Now, this is huge because the seal and the cord were the identity markers. It, it was as, as if they were carrying around the, the personal ID, the, the, the driver's license, right? It was, it was the picture ID of who it was. It was the identity. And the staff represented power. And notice how eagerly He was willing to forfeit it all. He was willing to give away his identity and his power for momentary satisfaction because that is what he was known for. This is the story of Jesus' genealogy. But let's be honest, it's not just their story. This story of momentary satisfaction and giving away everything is a part of a lot of stories. Think back about Jacob and Esau. Do you remember them from the Old Testament too? Jacob was home and he was making stew and Esau comes in from the field and he's famished and, and it says, he says he's about to die. And so he reaches out to Jacob and he says, listen, you have got to give me a bowl of soup. I'm about to die. I'm famished. And so Jacob, seeing an opportunity, says, all right, I'll tell you what, I'll give you a bowl of soup for your birthright. The birthright was the one and only pledge that would be given to the older sibling And it basically ensured this this power structure right in the family, that everything would go through Esau, that Esau would be named among everybody else. And Esau says, listen, go for it. So he gives his birthright and he gains some stew. And here's the complication from that. How many hours later, was Esau hungry. It was momentary satisfaction. It was was a little bit, right? And then he's like, all right, I'm full, I'm good. And then a few hours later, he's like, you know what I need some more of? Some stew, but I gave away my identity. I gave away the thing that meant the most to me for something that was so fleeting. This is the story here. Judah is so willing. He's such the personality that he's willing to give away his identity and his power for something so fleeting. A story goes on to say that he gives her everything and they sleep together. She goes back home. She puts on widow's clothes. He goes back to life as normal. And just a few months later, they say, hey, listen, Judah, we have a problem. The problem is, is that your daughter, who's supposed to be at her father's house, uh, living life as a widow, has, has become pregnant. And she must be a dirty prostitute. The first words out of his mouth were, well, then she's got to die. Isn't that funny? 
that oftentimes the people that are entrenched in the most sin are the people that are so eager to point it out in others. Church, that's why we don't sit around and judge everybody else. Because we have so many other things to focus in on ourselves. That's why Jesus says, listen, listen, before you try to pick the speck out of somebody else's eye. By the way, have you ever tried to do that before? Have you ever had somebody, a kid come to you and say, listen, I got something in my eye. You're like, all right, hold on a second. You know, I'm going to need some more light. It's difficult. He says, before you try to do that, how about you address this plank, this huge thing, stick it right out of your face. Judah says, hey, listen, if that's true of her, to death with her. So they bring her out and, and Taylor says, hey, listen, before you put me to death, I, I, I want you to know that it, it happened by one person and actually I have some identification markers of that person. So she brings forth Judah's identity markers and the crowd goes silent because they all know. And in this turn of events, he looks at her. He says, listen, well, I can see that you're more righteous than me. And I know what you're thinking right now. Nobody in this story seems very righteous. There isn't anybody who has, hasn't done something scandalous along the way. But in this moment... What Judah is really saying is, you're a better person than me. You are going after your promise. But other than that, I mean, I'm a pretty bad person. I've inflicted a lot of pain. I'm, I'm not the person that should be standing here in judgment of somebody else. That maybe Judah himself should be standing in judgment. And then the story continues on. And it continues on to Joseph and this amazing story of Joseph. And you're left to scratch your head with, what was that? Chapter 38 of Genesis, what, that was messed up. It never really resolves itself. It never really seems to redeem itself. There's, there's no real answers to all these difficult things that happen of people dying and people grieving and, and, and all this, uh, this stuff between a daughter-in-law and a father-in-law. What's going on with this? And listen, I don't want to try to gloss over hard things. In fact, sometimes I think we need to sit with them for a while. But I do think that there's a few takeaways that we can learn from this story. Especially in light of the fact that Matthew is willing to address that this is the lineage of Christ. The first one is this. That pain is passed through family lines until someone addresses it heals it, and lets it go. That pain is passed through family lines until somebody addresses it and heals it and then decides to let it go. 
Now, I don't know about your family, but I can tell you in my family, there was mental health issues. There were suicide attempts. There were all kinds of baggage. And all of those things were just swept right under the rug. So we didn't know how to deal with it. But eventually, if we don't want to pass the pain on to the next generation, then we have to address it. We have to call pain what it is. Then we work through that pain. And boy, is it trying. Boy, is it hard. Boy, is it messy. Boy, is it a lot like opening up Genesis chapter 38 and saying, what do I do with this? And then we decide to let it go. It is what it is. We can't change the past, but we can move forward knowing that we don't have to go back. The second thing that I think we can take away from this scripture is this. When it comes to dealing with a mess, you have the option to choose gratification over responsibility. When you look at dealing with the mess, you have the option to choose gratification over responsibility. The easy thing to do would to play into the sin. The easy thing to do would be to ignore it. The easy thing to do would be to sweep it under the rug and act like it never happened. But that's not the responsible thing to do. Don't choose to be the person who wants to end up in gratification with no responsibility. Ben, if you'll come on up to the stage so we get ready to close out our time together. The last thing that I think that we can learn from this is this, that dysfunction is passed down. It can be passed down. But so can redemption. Listen, dysfunction can be passed down, but so can redemption. And if a part of your story, a part of your story looks as messed up as Genesis chapter 38, then a part of your story can look like Matthew chapter 1 as well, where God takes brokenness and he takes the things that look like they're so messed up, you don't even know what to do with them or even read through them on a Sunday morning. But he'll take the brokenness and redeem it. And it will always be a part of your past, but it doesn't have to live into the future. And here's the thing, folks. Here's the thing. We have shepherds here today who, if that's what you're struggling with, I'm going to ask them to go out to the sides, right? If you're a part of that group, ask you to go out to the side. And, and here's the thing. If you need prayer today, I'd be glad to pray with you. Our shepherds will be glad to pray with you. Why don't you stand with us as we continue in worship today? Mm -hmm.